This is Ben Weingarten for Encounter Books, and today I'm joined by Ryan T. Anderson, author of the new book, When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. Ryan is the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He previously authored the book, Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom, and co-authored What is Marriage? Man and Woman, a Defense, as well as Debating Religious Liberty and Discrimination. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us today. Sure thing. Happy to be with you. So, Ryan, why and how did we arrive at, as your subtitle describes it, a quote-unquote transgender moment, given the relatively small size of the population actually impacted by this issue? Sure. So part of it has to deal uh, with the politics of, of these issues. Um, the acronym LGBT uh, need not have been um, conjoined with the LGB part and the T part, uh, but largely for political reasons, it became one single acronym. And as soon as LGBT activists had uh, successfully won on what they call marriage equality, um, all of these organizations, which you know were lavishly funded and uh, had deep connections with media and with Hollywood and with um, politics, they moved on to their next policy item, which was uh, transgender identities. Uh, they had accomplished their major policy goal on the LGB part, and they pivoted to the T part. Um, but as I mentioned, there's, there's no reason why um, you should necessarily think that um, sexual orientation and gender identity um, have anything in common. Uh, and therefore, what, what I've discovered is that many people who are in favor of same-sex marriage um, have deep reservations about some of the claims that are being made about gender identity and transgender identities uh, right now. So would you say that the organized groups sort of behind this movement and, and, and co-joining the, the T and the LGB part, is it that essentially at the ground level you have gay folks and lesbians who do not like the fact that their movement has kind of been hijacked for a group that they consider substantively different, but at a higher level the political actors that cynically use these issues are all about using identity as a cudgel, and it just made sense for them to create this sort of broader movement. Well, so I think at first, um, I mean, so, so where you could say there was some logic um, to, to uniting here was that if you think about the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, um, here you had um, sexual minority groups that were being mistreated by the general population, and so um, they found alliances and they formed alliances uh, where they could. And, you know, part of the initial wave of activism here was merely for tolerance and for basic human respect. Uh, I, mean, I think uh, living today, we can forget how poorly treated uh, many um, LGBT Americans were uh, just a generation or two ago and, and the way that many still are today. Um, and so some of the initial uh, kind of uh, unity there was merely to find um, alliances. Uh, where very few people were willing to be allies. Um, but now that we're in uh, the 21st century um, and tolerance is no longer what's being um, asked for, respect is no longer what's being asked for, but affirmation is what's being demanded. And I think that's where um, I've seen some um, lesbian and gay uh, activists say that they find some of the transgender claims uh, to be a bridge too far. I, I actually, I hosted an event um, here at the Heritage Foundation and I mentioned this uh, in the book, where um, the first lesbian to be reinstated to the military after Don't Ask, Don't Tell was lifted was one of the panelists um, for a panel of four women 
uh, speaking. The title was Biology Isn't Bigotry. Uh, and it was four women, two from the left side of the political aisle, two from the right side, speaking out against some of these transgender policies. Uh, and their underlying argument was that when gender identity wins, women lose. Uh, and so I just thought it was very fascinating that you have you know, a pioneering uh, lesbian activist um, speaking at the Heritage Foundation uh, to say that uh, men who identify as women um, being allowed to use women-only facilities or little girls um, being told that they're actually boys trapped in the bodies of girls and teenage girls being given testosterone, that this is all ways uh, in which women are losing uh, because of uh, some of the transgender ideology that's being promoted. Yeah, strange bedfellows indeed, uh, as always, in politics. In order to grapple with the political and social issues around transgenderism in an intellectually honest way, we have to start by sort of defining terms. And to that point, I wanted to, to ask if you would let our listeners know some of the salient scientific and medical points around transgenderism, since they're so intrinsic to all these other issues that we deal with in the political and social spheres. Sure. I mean, so, um, I mean, part of it is that it's not even clear exactly to me what the phrase um, transgenderism uh, refers to. Um, and and I, I, I imagine it has something to do with um, kind of a transgender worldview or transgender um, uh, ideology. Um, but the, the, the medical term uh, is gender dysphoria, but not everyone who identifies as transgender um, has gender dysphoria, and not everyone who has gender dysphoria identifies as transgender. Uh, so it might just be helpful for listeners to, to start by just distinguishing those two. Um, so transgender uh, is, a, is a term that refers to someone who identifies as um, the opposite sex. Uh, so a man who identifies as a woman or a woman who identifies as a man, um, that would go by the label transgender. Gender dysphoria um, is the condition of um, feeling or thinking that you're the opposite sex and having deep discomfort um, about that reality, that, you know, the, the reality that you um, uh, are a biological male, but you feel as a woman. Um, but not everyone with gender dysphoria uh, will identify as the opposite sex. Many will feel that they're the opposite sex, but they know that they're not actually the opposite sex. And not everyone who does identify as the opposite sex experiences gender dysphoria because they may or may not feel any distress um, with their identity as the opposite sex. Um, so th that's kind of... Um, the, the, the short synopsis of how those two um, uh, words are used. And then there's the further question of, you know, what's the general worldview? And I think that's where the transgenderism uh, comes into play. Yeah. And as for that worldview, unfortunately, as we've seen in almost every discipline within the academy, politics often trumps all else. And one of the stories that you speak about is that of Dr. Paul McHugh and Johns Hopkins. Speak a little bit to that story because I think it's a real microcosm is uh, of what is happening, ironically, here where when the science doesn't comport with that worldview, the science is essentially junked and attacked. Yeah, so um, the book kind of opens uh, with a discussion of, of Paul McHugh and what happened at Hopkins uh, 40 years ago. Uh, McHugh was an undergraduate at Harvard 
Uh, he then did his medical degree at Harvard Medical School. Um, and then in the 1970s, he became the psychiatrist in chief um, at Johns Hopkins Hospital uh, and the chair of the psychiatry program at Johns Hopkins Medical School. The reason this is relevant is because back in the 60s, Hopkins was the first major medical institution in the United States to open a sex reassignment clinic. Uh, and so in the 70s, a decade later, when McHugh is now the head of all psychiatric health at Hopkins, he, it's now up to him to kind of say, do I go along with this or not? Uh, and so he asked one of his colleagues to conduct a study of what was the long-term outcomes for the patients who had had um, their sex, quote, reassigned um, at Hopkins. And what he saw was that the patients were happy with the surgery as a cosmetic matter. You know, it, it, it had done what they wanted to be done to their bodies, but they didn't show any objective signs of um, improvement on their underlying um, psychosocial conditions. Um, so in terms of their anxiety or their depression or their substance abuse, alcohol abuse, their suicide ideation, uh, the surgery hadn't um, uh, brought them the, uh, uh, the change that they were hoping for, right? Because they weren't just having the surgery for the sake of the cosmetic part. They were having the surgery because they thought that their uh, underlying symptoms would improve if they, quote, reassigned their sex. Um, so as a result of that study, McHugh um, had Hopkins shut down the sex reassignment clinic. And for the next 40 years, uh, the way that Hopkins responded to gender dysphoria was by targeting therapy at the thoughts and the feelings um, of the patient rather than at the body. And unfortunately, a year and a half ago, Hopkins announced that it was reopening uh, a sex reassignment clinic, uh, not in the light of uh, new evidence, um, but largely because of uh, pressure from activist groups who had gone after Hopkins and had gone after uh, Dr. McHugh uh, for not going along with uh, the claims that were being made um, about gender identity and its fluidity and the ability to reassign it, et cetera, et cetera. What were your findings regarding those who fully transitioned and speak a little bit to some of the harrowing stories that you describe of those who detransitioned or regretted their transitions? Sure. So in terms of what the um, outcomes are in general, um, I, in the book, I quote several different literature reviews of the studies, uh, including a 2016 report that the Obama administration um, for Medicare and Medicaid um, services conducted. Um, and so that most recent uh, study, that 2016 report from the Obama administration, what they point out um, is that there's no robust um, scientific evidence that suggests that sex reassignment surgeries um, improve the underlying quality of life um, of the patients. Um, and there's, there's some research, including the most rigorous research, uh, that suggests that at the very least, um, those underlying symptoms continue and that possibly the reassignment makes things worse. Uh, and they, there they reference um, a study that was conducted, and it was a long-term study. Uh, so it would look at patients 10, 15, 20, up to 30 years after reassignment, and it showed that patients who had undergone sex reassignment procedures were 19 times more likely to die by suicide. What that study can't tell us is whether or not the surgery was the cause of that 19 times increase, or if it was just the underlying uh, conditions of gender dysphoria that were the cause and that the surgery just didn't improve um, uh, those outcomes. Um, so it can't say whether or not the surgery made things worse, but it can tell us that the surgery 
didn't make things better enough. Because uh, I think any of us would say that um, a, a procedure that where the outcome is a 19 times greater likelihood of um, suicide, uh, death by suicide, um, isn't um, sufficiently treating those underlying uh, conditions. Um, this has been um, uh, replicated on a number of studies that show a persistence in um, poor psychosocial outcomes uh, for people who identify as transgender. Dr. McHugh thinks that what's, what's happening here is that there's the underlying condition, um, the gender dysphoria itself, that causes some of these struggles, but then also that trying to live as if the opposite sex uh, makes life that much more difficult. So there's the underlying gender dysphoria that's creating difficulties in people's lives. They don't feel comfortable in their own bodies. But then also it's the trying to live as if the opposite sex, uh, whether that's just a social transition where they will wear a new wardrobe and um, uh, you know, refer to themselves with new pronouns and change their name, or if it's also a hormonal and possibly even a surgical transition, that that just proves to be difficult. Uh, the other uh, part that you asked about was you know, the people who uh, transitioned and then detransitioned. Um, and this was the, the chapter of the book that was um, most difficult to write. And it's what initially um, kind of convinced me that I had to do a book about this because um, I started seeing um, different YouTube videos and blog posts uh, from people frequently in their 20s and 30s um, who had transitioned um, as teenagers or in their early 20s uh, and then five or 10 years later uh, regretted it uh, and were now in the process or had completed the detransitioning uh, and were now re-identifying and living as if the, uh, or uh, living now as their uh, biological sex. Uh, and what's heartbreaking about these stories is that so many of them repeat common themes. Um, so for the people who transitioned as teenagers, they say, I was much too young and immature to be making such a life-altering decision when I was 17 years old. You know, I was going through a stage that many teenagers go through, um, and you know, I shouldn't have made a decision that would leave me in my 20s infertile and with a five o'clock shadow and with a scarred chest from having removed my breasts. Uh, and, and they said that you know, we, we weren't... Um, mature enough in our understanding of what it means to be a man or a woman. Uh, and so our thinking wasn't mature enough to be making these decisions. Um, but also we weren't at a stage in our life where we should be having that type of authority, regardless of you know, whether or not we had mature concepts of gender. They also report that the um, uh, clinicians that they had spoken with uh, didn't really discuss all of the possible underlying causes of their gender dysphoria or all of the possible treatments. Uh, they really presented it to them as if you are a boy trapped in a girl's body and taking testosterone is your only option. And so they regret they weren't given um, additional information and additional options. Uh, and then many of them also say that it's people like me um, who are partly to blame. Uh, they say that it's social conservatives, it's uh, evangelicals or conservative Catholics um, who are too rigid in their understanding of gender roles or sex stereotypes, and they're too stigmatizing uh, towards sexual minorities. Uh, and the reason I include that in the book is, you know, I, I want to um, caution myself and my readers um, not to do anything that's going to make life worse for people who are struggling with their gender identity, uh, for people who may transition. Um, uh, 
it's important. So the, the seventh chapter of the book is actually an attempt of getting rid of um, bad sex stereotypes and having a more um, mature, nuanced understanding of gender um, as a relevant presentation of our bodily sex, um, but not buying into either androgyny, where there are no differences between the sexes, um, nor buying in on the opposite extreme, um, a kind of a rigid gender role, a rigid sex stereotype in which boys have to play with G.I. Joe and girls have to play with Barbie. Uh, we want to avoid both of those uh, mistakes precisely so that people can feel comfortable being who they are in the body that they are. If you're a boy who likes Barbie, if you're a girl who likes G.I. Joe, that's fine. Uh, you don't have to transition because of that. I found it very striking in reading this book, and you just alluded to it a moment ago, the idea that you had clinicians who, in what I would suggest is a, is a dereliction of duty, as you noted, did not necessarily lay out all the options or, in a sense, openly and honestly advise and counsel their patients. If doctors were following the Hippocratic Oath, how should they address this issue properly? Sure. So um, the, the, uh, chapter six of the book goes through a bunch of um, case studies from the clinical literature. So these are published case studies uh, in the academic literature um, and specifically on young people uh, with gender dysphoria, because I think that's, to, to my mind, that's the most um, uh, crucial um, area right now is that if, if Bruce wants to be Caitlin it's a free country and adults can make their own decisions and we should do everything we can to have informed decisions. But at the end of the day, it's up to uh, Jenner to make that decision. But with children, um, they're, they're, they're minors. They don't have a kind of um, legal authority in making these decisions. So frequently they're being made on their behalf by other people. And so it's vitally important that we get this right. Um, and what the uh, clinical literature shows here is that 80 to 95 percent of young people with a gender identity uh, struggle, uh, gender dysphoria, or an uh, um, other what used to be called gender identity disorder prior to the new version of the DSM, um, that they would naturally grow out of it. Uh, they would resolve their gender identity in accordance with their biological sex if their development wasn't interfered with. Um, and so what therapists um, had been doing and what many still do is they'll talk to a child about what it is that they find distressing um, about their biological sex and what it is that they find attractive about the opposite sex. So they would talk to that um, eight-year-old boy about what it is that he finds distressing about being a boy and what it is that he finds um, attractive or appealing or reassuring about being a girl. And then they will try to, once they identify uh, some of the underlying causes, they try to remedy those causes. Um, so uh, I'll give you two examples of this. Um, one involves a young boy identifying as a, as a girl. His parents take him to see a clinician. And in the course of talk therapy of the clinician asking him, you know, why questions? Why do you think you're a girl? What is it about being a boy that you find distressing? Uh, the clinician discovers that the child is being bullied by the other boys uh, in his class, uh, that the other boys in his class are calling him a sissy and they're calling him a wuss and they're uh, picking on him because he's not, you know, a particularly macho guy, a particularly masculine guy. As a coping mechanism for this, he formed closer friendships with the girls in his class, and his interests were now more stereotypically feminine. Uh, and so he was convincing himself uh, at a subconscious level 
uh, that he was actually a girl trapped in a boy's body, and that's why the boys were picking on him, and that's why the girls were his friends. So the therapist suggested three things to the parents. One, uh, take your son out of this environment. This is a toxic environment, and it's the bullying that's causing your son to feel uncomfortable with being a boy. Uh, the second is um, keep bringing your son to sessions with me so that we can keep talking to your son about what a more robust understanding of boyhood and masculinity looks like so that he can know that real boys can be gentle and they can be sensitive, that you know, the, the, uh, his understanding of boyhood and masculinity is too rigid. It's too narrow. He thinks that the only real boys are the bullies. And since he's not a boy, he's not a real boy. And then third, they said, it's not enough to uh, talk to him about this. He needs to experience it. Uh, you need to help your son find a new friend group, a new peer group, a new play group of boys who are like him. If he develops friendships with boys who share his interests, he'll come more readily to know that he's a real boy. Uh, so after the parents did this, about a year later, uh, their son was re-identifying as a boy. So he was spared a life of visits to an endocrinologist to take estrogen. He was spared uh, a life of transitioning. Um, the, the other example um, uh, that I'll mention now, it, uh, the therapy wasn't directed at the child. It was directed at the parent. So in the course of talk therapy, there was a boy identifying as a girl. He said to his therapist, mommies are nicer to their daughters than they are to their sons. And that kind of set off the antenna of the therapist. Um, so he says to the mother, um, you know, your son said that uh, mommies are nicer to daughters than to sons. You know, what might be causing this? And she reveals to the therapist in the course of their conversations um, that a few years earlier, she had been raped. And as a result of her sexual assault, um, she had developed an antipathy towards men, an aversion towards men. And she was subconsciously uh, even applying this to her own son. She was physically incapable of being as affectionate with him as she was with her daughter. And her son was picking up on this. So um, as his coping mechanism, he was trying to curry his mother's uh, favor and affection by identifying as a girl. So the uh, response here was to get the mother um, the help that she needed to heal from her sexual assault, uh, to bring her that wholeness that she needed after experiencing that assault. Um, after she uh, was given the help she needed to heal, she was then able to be more affectionate with her son. Her son was then able to more readily identify as a boy. So another example of how, uh, in terms of you know what's the Hippocratic Oath kind of prescribe here is identify what's causing the gender dysphoria and then try to remedy those underlying causes. One of the disturbing things that you talk about in the book is the idea, as you just mentioned, you know, Bruce Jenner is an adult and can make decisions for himself or herself as the case may be. On the other hand, we've seen society in many ways elevate children and, and treat children as if they are in a position to make decisions that were previously in the domain of parents up until a certain age. In addition to that, there's been an elevation of the power of school and schools and school administrators over the parents themselves when it comes to the treatment of children who are dealing with gender dysphoria or psychological issues like it. Speak a little bit to that. Sure. One of the um, the most disturbing things that I came across when I was 
researching for the book uh, was a handbook um, that about four or five different LGBT activist groups and the ACLU and the National Education Association, uh, the largest teachers union in the country, had jointly produced. So that alone should be shocking to most parents that you're you're, the teachers union is partnering with the ACLU and half a dozen LGBT um, activist groups to produce a handbook for uh, local teachers and principals and superintendents on uh, how to make their school, quote, safe for transition. And that's the title of the handbook. And what I came across in this was a section on how to deal with, quote, uncooperative parents. Uh, and it's an entire checklist on how to ensure that a student can transition at school without their parents knowing about it. Uh, so that a school might um, keep a separate wardrobe on campus for that student. Uh, the parents drop their, their young boy or their young girl off at school in the morning. The student might go to the principal's office, change into uh, the opposite sex's uniform or the opposite sex's uh, dress code, outfit, whatever, live that day as if the opposite sex, go back to the principal's office at four o'clock, change back into their original clothes, and go home to mom and dad without the parents ever knowing. Um, they had an entire system on how you would ensure that internally you referred to the student by the new name and the new pronouns, but then externally when communicating to the parents, you would use the original name and the original pronouns. Uh, and this just strikes me as one of the grossest violations um, of parental authority um, that I've seen. Uh, the only thing that has gone beyond that was uh, after the book was released, um, a, a, a court in Cincinnati, Ohio, removed the child from the custody of her parents um, because the child wanted to transition. This is a 17-year-old girl who wanted to take uh, testosterone uh, therapy, and the parents wanted their daughter to receive um, uh, 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 psychological therapy, uh, therapy directed at her thoughts and feelings, not at her body. Uh, and the court sided with the government, uh, the uh, Child Protective Services, not with the parents. And the state has sought to impose its ideology with respect to gender in other ways as well. You speak to the created distinction between sex on the one hand and gender on the other. What are the policy implications that have transpired as a result of the shift in these two concepts? Yeah, so what we saw was in the last year of the Obama administration, um, the Department of Justice, the Department of Education, and the Department of Health and Human Services um, redefined the word sex to mean gender identity. Uh, and so anywhere in federal law where it said no discrimination on the basis of sex, they now said that that meant no discrimination on the basis of gender identity and that it was discrimination on the basis of gender identity to make a bathroom or locker room policy on the basis of biology rather than gender identity. So it's, it's, a, it's a double um, uh, uh, play on words. First, they're redefining sex as gender identity. And then second, they're saying it's discrimination on the basis of gender identity to not make gender identity the basis of your policies, but to base your policies on biology instead. Uh, and what I mean by this is that they told the, the Department of Education and Department of Justice sent a letter to all of the nation's schools saying that Title IX now requires 
that you make bathroom, locker room, dorm room, and sports policies based on the gender identity of your students, not their biology. So if you have separate facilities for boys and girls, second, separate teams for boys and girls, separate hotel rooms for overnight field trips or athletic competitions, separate dorm rooms, you have to do all of that now based on the gender identity of the student, not based on the biology of the student. Uh, thankfully, the Trump administration did away with this. Um, there were several courts that ruled against the Obama administration on this. And then when the Trump people came into the office, they let those court rulings stay in place, and then they rescinded the Obama guidance. Uh, but some states are continuing to do this, um, and we can expect that the next left-leaning administration will pick right back up where the Obama administration left off because the activists haven't changed any of their demands. And uh, So the activists are continuing uh, to press their case in court uh, and to press their case uh, with left-leaning politicians. The, the most famous case relating to this topic is North Carolina, North Carolina's HB2 law, which was, was of course attacked by activists and then the business community as well. You challenge those who would claim that it was an unjust or, or unconstitutional law. Explain your thinking on HB2. Sure. So what HB2 said, it said that when it comes to private uh, organizations, they can make their own policies. Uh, so if it's, if, it's, if it's your toilet, you can decide who uses it. Uh, when it comes to public facilities, uh, the government's policy, so um, in government schools, public schools, in uh, government offices like courtrooms, um, uh, government office buildings, things like this, um, those would all be determined primarily based upon biology. Uh, but anyone who had had uh, sex reassignment surgery um, could apply for a new birth certificate and then update their sex on their birth certificate and their driver's license. Uh, so the entire point here is that they wanted to have some standard of who's supposed to go where when it comes to bathrooms and locker rooms and any uh, single sex facility. Um, but they had a way for people who had actually undergone uh, sex reassignment procedures to change the sex that's listed on their uh, government identification. What they wanted to avoid is what's gone on uh, uh, now uh, several documented cases in the Target stores since Target changed its policies. Uh, men who were disguising themselves as women uh, to engage in sex crimes, uh, either indecent exposure or in the case of Target, uh, peeping toms. Uh, men who went into the Target fitting rooms disguised as women and then were using their iPhones to film women who are changing clothes. Um, th that's one of the reasons why we have separate fitting rooms uh, for men and women in the first place, right? to provide them with uh, the appropriate amount of privacy and safety uh, when they're in a state of undress from the opposite sex. Um, so HB2 is trying to codify this in law while also uh, creating a way for people who had had reassignment surgery to access their new uh, facilities and with allowing schools to accommodate uh, people who were identifying as transgender with the creation of a single occupancy restroom, for example. Many restaurants now do this simply as a matter of course. Uh, rather than having a multiple occupancy restrooms, they'll just have a series of single occupancy restrooms, and either sex can use it because only one person is in at the time. Um, these are the types of workarounds that people are um, trying to promote, that I'm trying to promote, and then activists attack this uh, as saying that these themselves are transphobic, that unless you treat – 
um, uh, the transgender boy, exactly like every other boy, um, you're not uh, respecting who he is, despite the fact that a transgender boy is a girl who identifies as a boy. Yeah, one of the problems in dealing with any of these sorts of issues, in particular in the realm of identity and in a time in which the, the cult of identity politics dominates is the idea that if you challenge the conventional wisdom or the prevailing ethos on a given topic, whether it's transgenderism or any other one, you will be called a bigot. And the point of that is, in a sense, to kind of shut down debate and stifle it before it even starts. Do you see the kind of transgender ideology that you argue against in this book ultimately dominating as so many other ideologies have dominated in the past? Or what do you anticipate occurring in the years ahead on this issue? So um, it, it's hard to make the short-term uh, prediction. Uh, I think the longer-term prediction is that um, this is unsustainable. Um, so the reason that the subtitle of the book is responding to the transgender moment is that I think um, ultimately this will just be a moment uh, in history that uh, transgender ideology, because it's contrary to so many um, basic truths of human nature, uh, that it can't stand the, uh, the test of time, uh, that you can't build an ideology um, based on uh, falsehoods of, of human nature. In the short run, I don't know um, how long uh, this moment will last for um, or what the human cost of getting human nature wrong will be, or how um, aggressive uh, this, uh, uh, the activists during this moment will be. Uh, I could foresee the next presidential administration being very aggressive in trying to enforce transgender ideology. And the reason they have to be so aggressive in enforcing it is that ordinary Americans, regardless of their political affiliation and regardless of their religious affiliations, um, they know that there's something not quite right uh, when you're putting a five-year-old boy in a dress, uh, when you're putting a 10-year-old girl on puberty-blocking drugs, when you're putting a 16-year-old girl on testosterone, uh, when you're um, castrating an 18-year-old boy. Uh, ordinary Americans think that these are radical experimental procedures, and they're not going to be willing to uh, be called a transphobic bigot um, simply because they urge um, some caution before making these uh, life-altering decisions. I think this is unlike uh, the same-sex marriage debate in that respect. I think this is unlike um, some of the other debates where, we, where the left has successfully silenced people. Um, I think your average American, uh, Joe the Plumber, uh, he doesn't want his um, uh, fifth-grade son coming home from school and announcing that he's actually a girl trapped in a boy's body. Uh, and he doesn't want his um, 10th grade girl coming home from school and telling him that there's a boy sharing her locker room. Uh, and, I, and I don't think that is a particularly partisan uh, reality. I don't think that's a particularly religious reality. I think if Joe the Plumber is a um, left-leaning, Obama-voting uh, secularist, uh, he still has these uh, gut intuitions uh, about his children. The name of the book is When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment, and we've been speaking with its author, Ryan T. Anderson. Ryan, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Sure thing. For more from Encounter Books, visit us at EncounterBooks.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Vile's Freeway.